Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Again, I want to welcome everyone, um, especially those who have come in after. I just gave the opening address. I do. Um, I want to transition now into um, a little bit of on the on the basis of what I'd already said. I want to transition into um, going through the Bible um, in a way to show us, particularly many of us who are in ministry, to call us back to a biblical conviction of what God actually called us to. But thereafter, I want to use that, after doing that, I want to use that to, if I may, assess a lot of situations of what has happened in our country and why many, in, in some ways, the Christian church, we should be, we should get back to certain things or get back and go forward to certain things that we need to be doing. Amen? So I'll tell you this message, what, um, the value of being on mission, the value of being on mission. Now, we think about what makes someone valuable. Now, we are in church. We say because we are created in the image of God, it's true. That's what gives us inherent wealth. But really, if you think about it in the world today, and even in fact in the church, the reason that we are valuable is very simple. It's because we offer value. You are valuable if you offer value. You will always be in a job if you offer some form of value. I'm not saying that you may not be out of a job for a while, but eventually, if people see that you can offer them value, they will have no problem paying you. If people see that your product offers them value, they will have no problem paying for it. You are valuable because you offer value. When what you offer is perceived as good, people will part their money for it. Amen? That's why it's called goods and services. The service that you are rendering, the product that you are giving, is it good? And the question we should ask, therefore, is for Christians, are we valuable in the society or in the world that we are sent to? Why are we valuable? Because here's the thing, we are called to do good. Titus 3 verse 8 says that those who have trusted in God should carefully devote themselves to do what? To doing good. We are called to offer value by doing good. Now, on the one hand, I've already just assessed and said, if you think about the commercial world, people perceive this good and this, uh, uh, the value that we bring on certain kinds of criteria. For instance, on the chair you're sitting, is it, is it comfortable? Then it is good. In the hall that you're in, is the temperature very good? You say, oh, there's value there. The person that you're dating, does the person make you feel good? Not all the time. <laughs> that doesn't mean she just break up. Or maybe your spouse, ah, if it's that the case. <laughs> and here's the thing. If we as a church are saying that we are called to do good, question is this, who defines what that good is? Well, I'll tell you this. The only reason we are called to do good is because there is a good God that has sent us out. God is inherently good. When God created the world, he said that it was good. It wasn't just because the world found an intrinsic goodness in it. It's because out of him came out the world and he's always good. So a good God has sent out his people. And if he's sending out his people, he can only send his people to do one thing. It is for them to do good. But if it is coming out of him, that means you and I don't have the right to be able to define what that good is. It is God that tells us what that good is. Amen. Amen. It's God's desire that we do good and we offer value into the world. It is not just his desire. Can I tell you this? It is a commandment as well. The great commission is a commandment. It is a commandment to go out and do good. But it's to do good from God's perspective. And I want to read a passage of scripture that is going to inform my talks today and tomorrow. 
Um, and we'll go through a number of scriptures though. This is going to be, this uh, sermon or teaching is going to be theological. And I know you're all happy to hear that because many of us are ministers here. And if you are not happy to hear that, then we should, you are happy to hear it. <laughs> all right. But I want to read from Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 48. It is Peter in the home of Cornelius. Here's how it starts. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened? Throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us. To preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All prophets testify about him. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was yet speaking these words. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. This is a massive passage. I don't know if you've ever read it. I don't think there's a passage that summarizes the gospel better than this passage in the entire scripture. But a part that really hits me, and we'll look at most of it, but... It's really, verse 37 to 38. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. Verse 38 is so pregnant with meaning. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Listen to this truth. Wherever there has been mess, a mess in the world, in God's world, and God is going to act to work out that mess, he always calls someone. He works through someone. And he works through that person or that group of people in a three-pronged way. And I want us not to forget this. This is what he does. Through election, consecration, and then commission. Let's say it together. Election, consecration, and then commission. How does God work through? Election, consecration, and commission. That is, God selects a person or a people... He sets them apart for a particular work. Think about it. When God created the world, he says he created many things. Then he started to create, he created inanimate things. Then he started to create animate things. And then he created a special animate creature. He called them mankind. You see, God created everything and it was good. He created the birds, they were good. He created the, the fish in the sea, they were good. He created the animals on the, on the land, they were all good. 
But then he created man in his image. And that man, that human being, he selected the human being above all of his creation, election. And then God set them apart by blessing them. In verse 28 of Genesis 1, he says, and God blessed them. Not in a way that he blessed the animals. Are you following me? But why did he bless them? He said, so that they can be fruitful, multiply, and what? Replenish the earth. There was something for the man to do. Adam was chosen, consecrated, and then commissioned to be God's servant, to do his will, and to bring flourishing in the world that God had created. But we know the story. Adam failed. Amen? And that plunged the world. This is what we call the fall. That plunged the world into a sort of chaos that is moving the world to, into total destruction. And so even though God created the world good and gave Adam this commission by electing and, 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 and consecrating him to, to, to multiply the flourishing of this world, now it is in a mess. So what does God do? He still uses the same framework, but now when he's going to react, he's not going to have to react in a redemptive way because the world is no longer good. Do you understand me? So his action now becomes redemptive, but he still uses the framework. What is the framework? Election, consecration, and then what? Commission. And so a series of people God starts to choose to use for his work. Now, but quickly understand something. Whenever God chooses a person, he does not choose another person. That is how he rejects. Jacob have I loved and Israel uh, and Esau have I rejected, not or hated, because he did not choose him. It's not because he has something against Esau. Are we following? In the same way, God did not choose the animals, he chose Adam. And so, in that regard, God, in unveiling this plan, God chose, consecrated, and commissioned Abraham to do what? To bless the nations. God chose. And he, well, sorry, God chose and consecrated, commissioned Abraham, not Lot, to bless the nations. Amen. God chose and consecrated and commissioned Isaac, not Ishmael, to be the bearer of the Abrahamic promise. God chose, consecrated, and commissioned Jacob, not Esau, to start God's nation. God chose, consecrated, and commissioned Joseph, not Reuben, to save God's nation. God chose, consecrated, and commissioned David, not Saul, or David's brothers, to start the messianic destiny. Are you seeing how God works? Maybe we should look at David just very quickly. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Just so you see it through scripture. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn Saul since I have done what? Rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Why? I have what? Chosen election. Do you see? I have chosen one of his sons to be King, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. The commission is him for, to be king. I have chosen him. You say, where's the anointing? What's the oil there for? Where's the consecration? What's the oil there for? Now go to verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Election, consecration, and then what? Commission. This is what it means to be God's servant. You are not the servant of God if you've not been chosen, consecrated, and commissioned. Now we think about it, I just showed you with specific individuals. Now these individuals, notice I mentioned certain specific people that are familiar. Why are they familiar? Because they are, many would say some of them are patriarchs of the nation of where? Israel. But do you know that Israel corporately themselves was God's servant? And the same framework operates with Israel. 
Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. And we we'll also look at Isaiah 49, verse 3 and 6. This is what it says. It says For you are a people holy that's set apart or consecrated to the Lord. The Lord your God has... Say it with me. The Lord your God has what? Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. In other words, he chose Israel and he rejected the peoples. He has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. If God chose them, what did he choose them for? If there is a framework. And Isaiah chapter 49 tells us what he did. He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And I have chosen you for a specific purpose because of the mess of the world. He says, I will make you a light. Not I will make you a judgment on the Gentiles. I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Election, consecration, and what? Commission. But there's a familiar tale. As the first individual that was chosen failed. And all the other people, they tried. They served God in their generation. But all of them are littered with things that they did that still ultimately failed God. Even the ones who bear the promise, they are part of the problem as well. What do you think happened to Israel? They failed as well. Miserably. And so they entered into exile. God's chosen man, Adam, failed. God's chosen nation, Israel, failed. God's servants always fail him. Who is a servant of God here? You will fail him. And so if the world is in a mess and the servants God continues to choose, continue to fail him. Is there any hope and salvation for the world? I bring you good news. There is a servant that will never fail him. Israel failed, but there was somebody else that was chosen that was going to do what Israel couldn't do. Matthew chapter 12. Aware of this, Matthew 12, 15, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my Servant, here he is. You see, with in, when Isaiah was quoting that, he was quoting about Israel. But he was saying, but is it the same Isaiah said that Israel will fail? So if Israel will fail and Israel is the servant, then what is going on? Because there is a faithful Israelite that will not fail. Come on. Come on. Here is my servant whom I have what? Chosen. The one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. God chose Jesus, not Israel, because Jesus was that Israel that Israel refused to and could not be. The fulfillment of all Israel is Jesus, the faithful Israelite. But don't forget, before Israel failed, who did we say failed? There was a man, the chosen creature, the man himself failed. Like all men that fail. But I want to show you in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, something here. In Romans 5 verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, even though he was chosen for something else, he brought sin and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the man that Adam could never be. Jesus is the man that none of us could ever be. Amen. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15 even pushes more clearly. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. In other words, what am I trying to say? There is this constant contrast 
you see in scripture. How God chooses people, God sets them apart, God commissions them, they fail. But that thread of people failing, and even when they are doing good, what is it doing? It is leading us somewhere. So when he says that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, he's not saying he's setting the law away, he's not saying he's reinstituting the law, he's saying that the law, all the stories in the law were pointing to me as the chosen servant. And here's what you can see. God's servant par excellence could never just be a mere man. Because every mere man is born with the curse of all mere men. Every mere man will fail. Now, if it is not a man that can do it, then who can do it? You will say it is God. But it is to redeem men. But we can't just use mere men. But what if we had God that became a man? Philippians 2 verse 6. Let's see what it says about the servant. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of what? A servant. Being made in human likeness. The salvation of the world, the salvation of humanity can only come by God, but it is God who became a human being. Our greatest problem is that we don't have a relationship with God. If only we could have one that could mediate between God and men. And the greatest mediator that can mediate between God and men is God that is a man. God's chosen servant. And so Jesus is elected, chosen. Jesus is consecrated for a good work. That brings us back to that text. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around, commissioned, doing what? Good. For God only does God. And notice, the good work that Jesus continued to do, you know what he led to? The good news about Jesus. That's what he said. So if you read verse 36, listen to it. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing what? The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then, he now said in verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews. Everything he did. And in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. The good work of Jesus ultimately leads to the good news about Jesus. What is the good news about Jesus? Let me give you a definition. Because this gives us some part. I want to bring it together. If you like it, use it. If you don't like it, he doesn't like you or something. I don't know. But here's how I like to define the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus first and foremost. It's not about what we do with it. It's not about what it gives to us. If we believe it, that is one thing. He said when you believe it, you receive the forgiveness of sins. But the gospel itself. Are you ready? It is the good news of what God has done. I'm sorry. It is, yeah, the gospel is the good news that the incarnate servant and crucified savior... Jesus the Messiah is the resurrected heavenly king priest and righteous judge of the world. I'll say it again. The gospel is the good news of the, that the incarnate servant and crucified savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the resurrected heavenly king priest and righteous judge of the world. Time will not permit me to go through all of that. I'll probably talk on it a number of times. But you see all of that in this text. How he is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. How he is resurrected. God raised him from the dead. You see, they hung him on a cross. But he is the chosen servant. But he's not just a servant that is of any kind of servant. He is the incarnate servant. Do you understand? These are the things. Now, what you see in the Bible is occasionally to take two of those things. I preach Christ and him crucified. He's taking one of it. Oh, 
we, um, uh, we all, uh, all we preach is Jesus Christ as Lord. That's another part of it. But when you bring it all together, it is giving Jesus certain identities about the good things he has done. And now it is that that we then go and proclaim to people. Amen. But I want to now make a crucial shift. Because what God does through Jesus is also extended to Jesus' people, the church. Ah, it's coming to us. You see, the work of redemption is done by God through Jesus. Make no mistake. The work of, let's say, I want to say it after me. The work of redemption redemption. is done by God through Jesus. Jesus. But the spread of redemption, say it to me, the spread of redemption redemption. is done by God God. through the church. Jesus is not here. Jesus literally is not here, but he is here by his spirit in his body. Go ye out into all the world. So in other words, the church also must go through this three-pronged dynamic. Is that three-pronged dynamic there also in the text, in the Bible? Look at verse 41. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already what? Chosen. Election. Election. And at the same time, you see, when it says chosen, it's not just that, and this is a mistake sometimes people make, you make it seem like God has chosen me specifically. No, he doesn't choose you specifically. He chooses you in him. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 4. This is what he says. He says, Ephesians 1 3 to 4. Okay, let me, let me say it here. He says, praise be, that's Ephesians 1, or Ephesians, yeah, it's Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Praise be to God our Father and, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom has blessed, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, what? Him. Our election is in Christ. God doesn't, if God, who, who are you for God to choose? What do you have? Nothing. Oh, look at, look at you guys. You are okay. But none of you find past me, first of all. So, so God can't choose you because you are looking good. He will choose me before you. Yeah. And for the ladies, he will choose my wife. Well, maybe, maybe we are the chosen couple. I don't know. <laughs> the last chosen couple failed miserably. Though. So let's, let's leave that. Chosen in him. Before the creation of the world. To be what? Holy and blameless in his sight. Another one, favorite one of ours. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 and 9. It says this. But, uh, well, as you come to him, the living stone, this living stone was rejected by humans. But remember, he was what? Chosen of God. Uh, chosen by God and precious to him. Now he's chosen by God. Now verse 9, that tells us, but you are what? A chosen people. We are chosen because he is chosen and we are chosen in him. Oh, <laughs> And just as one nation failed him before, the Israelite nation failed him, this nation, the nation under him, because you are not just a chosen people and a royal priest. Do you know what you are? You are what? A holy nation. This holy nation will not fail him, not because of anything good in themselves, but because of the one that they are chosen in. Jesus Christ has already made a success, so we cannot fail. For it says you will not do it by yourself, but I will build my church. If the church was left to us to build, we will fail miserably. But I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against it. This mission is already a success. Are you going to join it or not? But remember, our choice is not just the thing. Election is not just the thing. What comes after election? Consecration of the anointing. Remember now, Jesus here, he says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the what? Holy Spirit. If Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, what do you think the church was to go and com- to do and do the commission? John chapter 20. Or even before John chapter 20. Yeah, John chapter 20, verse 21, 23. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. He's talking to his disciples after he's risen from the dead. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And when, with that, he breathed on them and said, 
Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Take the message of forgiveness, but you can't do that without receiving the Holy Spirit. I'll talk a little bit more about that, a lot more about that tomorrow. Amen. And that's why when Peter was preaching to these people and they believed, what happened? He says the Holy Spirit came. Those people that Peter was preaching to, those Gentiles, what happened to them? They were immediately anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now to do what? To fulfill the mission. Are you seeing? The church was chosen. The church was anointed so that it can be what? Commissioned. Now let me tell you this. What is our mission made of when we preach the gospel? Because it says testifying. It says that we are, uh, um, uh, verse, verse, um, verse 41. He was not seen by people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from death, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. When we take this gospel out, what is the result of this gospel? Look at verse 43. All the prophet testify about him that everyone who believes in him. Now, now notice that. There is the gospel given. Now, there is the response to the gospel. Now, if there is the right response to the gospel, there is the result of the right response. The result or the response are not the gospel. The gospel is the announcement. Because I can preach a gospel to somebody and the person doesn't respond rightly. So, forgiveness of sins is not the gospel. It is the result of believing the gospel. Are you following? The gospel is Jesus. The person and the work of Jesus. The unique things Jesus has done to bring about good, but you must receive it. So, he says we go and we preach. Now, when we do so... Two things are the result of our mission. Two things are the result of our mission. Are you ready for them? Two things. One, conversion of sinners. Two, transformation of sins. Conversion of sinners, transformation of sins. I'll say it again. Conversion of sinners, transformation of sins. And this is God's strategy. Conversion of sinners. We already see it here in verse 43. It says, all who believe in him receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. But this is not the end of what the gospel does. The gospel also transforms. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans 12, it says this. But just go to verse 2. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's not talking to people who are not Christians. He's talking to people who are Christians. But he's then saying they should be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Then you'll be able to te test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Read 1 Corinthians 14, the most extended passage on, on what it means to have the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy and tongues. No, it's not just about prophecy and tongues. It's about what people do in the church and what is going on there. You see people exalting God. You see believers being edified. And you see unbelievers being evangelized. Conversion and what? Transformation. Now listen to the strategy of God. Listen. This was the strategy of God. People who are not believing in him. The gospel goes out to them. And the gospel calls them out of the world into his marvelous light. Amen. He calls them to be part of his body. Conversion. Now, as they are in the body, they are receiving the gospel in multifaceted ways. So they are being what? Transformed. But those who are transformed are given a mission. What is the mission? To go out and bring more of the people who are not believers like them and to convert them. And so you have this cycle. The transformed, the converted ones must be transformed, but the transformed ones are the evangelists that bring out many back into being converted, and those who are being converted are transformed, and they go out and they go and pick more. Do we understand that? Our transformation was so that we can go back to being on mission. There is a purpose to our transformation. It is not to keep us within, it is to send us out. The called out ones eventually become the sent out ones. So we are anointed to be commissioned. This is why you are still here. Yeah. 
Or else, God should just save you and then send you to heaven. But we are here because we have work to do. We were given that same Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was, to be sent out. To do what? To go and convert the Gentiles, bring them into the church. And then those same Gentiles are discipled and transformed to go and bring and make more disciples. Are we following? There's a world that is languishing in bad news. But we, the church, are chosen, consecrated, and commissioned to give them good news. Now, I want to shift. That is the theology. I hope you are convinced by it. So, can I have that? I hope you are convinced by that. All right? If you are not convinced, there's a Q&A. I'm willing to answer any questions. But I now want to turn it into an assessment of the church in Nigeria as I've seen it. Because something shifted. You see, sometime in the early 90s, because there had been a prior neglect of the transformation bit of the gospel. You see, when we had in the 60s, we had a huge, what we call the scripture union movement. And it was mainly about formation of Christian character, but mainly about conversion. You have a sort of personal character, and you basically wait to go to heaven. It said nothing about someone that is ill. It says nothing about someone that was in poverty, somebody that is trying to, is trying to just eat more than one meal a day. Say, ah, there is, a, there is bread that if you eat it, you will not hunger again. Ah, where's that bread? Ah, it's about Jesus. Okay, I'm still hungry. There was something about this gospel that was given that seemed removed from the normal life. It's like, okay, believe the gospel, that is, I believe it. All right, what else? And the thing that was missing in that presentation of the gospel was such a wooden presentation of the gospel. It was a gospel literally based on John 3, 16 and, John, and, and Romans 10, 9 to 10. For God's not the world gave his only God's son that whosoever believed in will not perish but have eternal life. This is how we know, how do you say that Romans 10, 9 to 10, that if you believe in your heart that, if you declare with your mouth, if you believe, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you declare with your mouth? Do you receive, come forward? That's it. You're a Christian. Go now. Like what else? I don't know. We sing hymns and we just wait for the coming of the Lord. This was a tragic mistake. It wasn't just a tragic mistake pragmatically. It was a tragic mistake biblically. God had more to say. He had said more. And then, different Christians from the revival on the campuses in the 70s and went into the 80s, different Christians of different denomination types, were wrestling with this mistake and this error. And coming from different denominational boundaries or what have you, they, they tried to process how do we deal with this thing. And some of them came with different conclusions. It led to do so many different things. But more and more, people started coming with, whether it is what they call word of faith, or you come with the prosperity gospel, or you come with we're apostles in the marketplace, or you come with the kingdom agenda, or you come with the seven mountains, all of these different things. We're trying to answer something. That does the gospel that you say is an answer, does it answer the questions that I am asking? Yes. Yes, yes some of them did not do well, but at least you have to acknowledge the attempt to make an answer, to, to give an answer for this question. What they were answering, here's what I'm saying. They were saying there is a transformation. There needs, there seems to be a transformation aspect of this message. And it is woefully missing. So by the time you get from the mid-80s, particularly to the 90s, there is a lot of this transformation going on. This transformation message that is going on. 
And then came another mistake. Because we exclusively at some point focused on conversion and left out transformation, and because that burned so many people, the next shift was to focus on transformation to the exclusivity of conversion. This is when church's name started moving from, in the older one, you hear something like this, Greater Evangelism World Crusade. And that quickly changed to Global Changers World Crusade or something like that. Or Global Change Makers. Notice the name, Evangelism Conversion, Change Makers Transformation. And here's the thing I want to put to you. When you replace conversion exclusively with transformation, you will replace the object of your mission from being non-Christians to totally being Christians. Our churches became about seven Christians alone. And so what then started to happen was churches moved... We moved for, uh, we started to focus, let me put it this way. The shift happened when we started to focus on how faith built up the believer and not how faith saved the unbeliever. Faith was exclusively spoken about on how you can move mountains, how you can achieve this, how you can, but faith ultimately in the scripture was how somebody moved from darkness into light. So it meant that we focused more on breakthroughs, on deliverances, on our work, on our finances, on our families. Our outreach programs were not just evangelism, but now they started becoming relationship classes. They started becoming marriage classes. They started becoming parenting classes. They started to uh, focus on capacity building, leadership stuff, creativity, all of these kinds of things. Now listen to me. All of those things are good. In my church, we talk about transformation all the time. We are not going to now make another swing and say, ah, we forgot about transformation. Now let's go all the way back to conversion alone. God is saying that the mission of the church has always been what? Conversion of sinners and transformation of what? Saints. We can hold the two together because the gospel holds the two together. Amen. I want to, with that, and with this, this mistake, I want to show you how it has affected three classes of people that we must go back. Our mission is back to these people. There are many others, but these three, I think, are critical. The first one, Muslims. Recently, I heard at their 40th Holy Ghost Convention, Bishop Walioke says something, and he's did write about this. He said that our the attitude changed towards Muslims. That in the 70s to 80s, that more often than not, what happened, the attitude of Christians towards Muslims was evangelism. But what has changed? And here's my own analysis of it. Because I really do think he's right. Let me give you proof. I grew up as someone 80s and 90s, and there were many people that I knew, many people that I knew, that were Christian from Islam. 90% of the people that I knew that were Christian converts from Islam, 90% of them are 40 or above today. What does that mean? At some point, it dried up. I don't know many of them who are 20-something. Are you following me? There was a zeal towards moving towards the Muslims. But something changed. And let me tell you, the change was because we moved towards transformation and we left conversion. And when we are trying to transform, who are we transforming? We are transforming the people who are inside the church. We were focusing on empowerment, all of these things. So we stayed away from Muslims. And when we stayed away from Muslims, what happened? We stopped building relationships with Muslims. And once you stop building relationships with people, you cannot convert them. Do you know what happens once you stop building relationships with people? You start to suspect them. And once we start suspecting them and we started creating distance, two other things happen. You fear them or you hate them. Or both together. Yeah. 
And because you fear them and you hate them, you stay away from them. So the next thing is, what kind of relationship can I have with Muslims? There's only one kind. We must defeat them. And if we don't defeat them by guns, we must defeat them at the ballot box. And that is why when an election comes up, we start mobilizing Christians. Because our only hope is no longer in God, it is now in politics. May the Lord bind such a spirit. Come on. And that is why many times that when we talk about Muslims, it's about fear, it's about an Islamic agenda, it's about this, it's about that, and we're trying to stay away, we're trying to do something. No, God says this, love your enemies. It is fear and hatred that makes you stay away, but love does what it moves towards them with the gospel. Because we neglected one, whilst we should have taken the two together, so we focus on just trying to build Christian politicians that will defeat Muslim politicians. Not Christian evangelists that will go into politics to also win Muslim politicians to Christ. I can say that in this kind of city, for instance, we have creatives and things like that. There are many people in this part of Lekki and VI, people who have rooted themselves they are they are expressing the creativity of god in their in their lives but what i find a lot of christians are trying to do is that we're trying to show that we christians who have creativity and so we're trying to show that they have music we too we have music we're almost trying to compete with them don't think because i'm a christian i can't be creative and then some christians now start floundering as per well, where's the gospel and they start saying things like i don't really go to church i just express my creativity all of these things we are trying to be like them. you can't beat them god has called you to them don't get me wrong, I'm saying yes, let us be creative, let us be expressive, but don't forget you were chosen, you were anointed, and you were what? Commissioned. God is raising and he will raise a generation of people that will turn this thing around. I want to speak to us as Christians, particularly here in the Southwest. There are many of our Christian, Muslim, uh, Christian northern brothers that have been doing this thing. They do it through huge persecution. Let us look out for them. Let us partner with them. Let us ask for a revival. Let us ask that, that God will grant us the zeal, the determination, the persistence, and the favor that enables the gospel to penetrate into the house of Islam. Do it again, Lord. You did it in the 70s, you did it in the 80s. You are the Lord of the harvest. Do it again in our time. Anoint your people, oh God. Send these winds, oh God, of your spirit. Send the winds of prophecy. Call us from the east. Call us from the west. Call us from the south. Let your anointing, oh God, flow. And send us out, oh God, into the crevices once again. To go and tell people that Muhammad is not the prophet that has been chosen. But there is one that was chosen. Anointed by the Holy Ghost to do good. And now he has poured that Holy Ghost upon his people. Send us out, oh God. They will once again, they will say that Jesus is Lord. But that's one group. There's a second group. Children. Let me tell you a tragic mistake we made. I'm talking about Christians. You know, Jesus said this. He said, let the little children come to me, right? Let the little children come. We've assumed Jesus' words, let the little children come. We've assumed it for church children as saying, since your little children will come. They were born in church. Since they will come. Or since the little children have come. No, 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 no. We don't give birth to children, to Christians' children. They, are, they have to be born of God. Yeah. That they run around does not mean they are Christians. We assume. Let me tell you this. Please write this thing down. Because assumption is such a deadly thing. The gospel believed in the first generation that is assumed in the second generation will surely be lost in the third generation. 
The gospel believed in the first generation that is assumed in the second generation will surely be lost in the third generation. Let me give you a case study. There's a guy in, he's a pastor in um, Singapore. His name is Tan Senhao. He tells the story of South Korea. South Korea, before this Korean War in 1953, were 4% Christian. That is one out of 25 people in South Korea were Christians. Are we following? Somehow after the war, they experienced a massive revival. The Presbyterian Church, the Pentecostal Church, massive revival. Such that by 1985, 34% of the South Korean population were Christians. Did you see that? One out of 25 to more than one out of three. God can turn things around, guys. In just 30 years. That is why the largest, forget our glory dome that we are building and all of this. The largest churches in the world are still today in South Korea. The largest church in the world. Yongichu's church, right? Yoido Fellowship. It's in, it's in South Korea. 800,000 people. In 1985, 34%. That was the, the fruit of the generation that believed. But that generation started to go into what? Transformation alone. So that by 2015, 30 years after, 22% of people in South Korea are now Christians. They've lost 12%. Now it is about one out of every, uh, um, um, two out of every nine. He said that's not bad. Remember where they're coming from. But here is the most damning statistic. Of that 22%, only 3% of the of youth say that they believe in God. Only three. That 22% is going, it's a free fall. This is what happens when you assume that the little children, because they were born in your home, have come to Jesus. You see, what Bishop Walioke was saying about the Christian attitude that was there towards um, 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 Muslims, it was largely led through the campuses because of the revival of the campuses. So when they were having fellowships, they would pray, they would sing, and then they go out. Today, what is fellowship about in, 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 in our campuses? It is one young guy that is trying to build an empire inside. A young guy of 22 is getting 21 year olds carrying his Bible and calling him daddy, daddy. Yes. And he's just waiting for after he finishes how he's going to carry that and bring that into the, into the world so that he can set up his own church. I'm not talking about you, Pastor Tolu. He can set up. <laughs> just to be clear. The campus he led is not the church that he's leading now. He didn't, he didn't transport it. For many of us, this is the ambition. Just carry, just carry that church and then come outside and set up your own church. It has nothing to do with trying to build more Christians. We just keep transferring Christians across churches. But worst of all, our children, we are neglecting them. We create the church. We create the church strictly just to feed adults and not Christians, ch and not children. We just fought the children of somewhere. Look, I know capacity, especially if you're a pastor here. Think about your children's ministry. It is probably your most critical ministry. Many times our children's ministry are just like daycare centers so that we, they can keep quiet. You should spend money on your, Christian, on your children's ministry. Spend more money on children's ministry than on your music. I, I know of churches, I'm not going to mention, churches that have the capacity, they carry children from, they have classes, listen to this, class of zero to seven. Eight, zero to seven, you put zero, one, two, three, four, five, in the same class. Wow. <laughs> and you wonder what they're learning. We don't explain the truth to them and then we ask them, you know what we do? We, we've, we specialize in teaching them Christian morality and thinking that we are giving them. Morality is important, but morality has no power if there is not the gospel that fuels it. There are those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. The power is in the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is what? The power of God unto salvation. 
We must evangelize our children. And let me tell you, part of how you evangelize your children, first don't make the mistake. Stop being condescending towards the children. And stop being nostalgic. In our own day, we didn't used to do that. Who cares about your own day? They don't care about it. They are in their own day. Reach out to them. Understand what they are going through. Equip yourself with the questions, with the answers to give to those questions. Let them see, be seen as they have value. That their questions have value. For a six-year-old, the six-year-old's question has value to a six-year-old. It may not have value to you as a 45-year-old, but it has value to them. And let me tell you, it has value to God as well. Yes. Don't assume the gospel. Some of us just teach morals. Some of us just ignore them. And I understand sometimes, listen, I've been, I'm a church planter. The pressure is there to satisfy parents. I get, and I'm not here trying to tell you that you shouldn't think about a worship service. Don't think because I just said that you should satisfy children. That doesn't mean you shouldn't satisfy the parents. Because the parents that bring the children, you understand? But now that they brought the children, do something with the children. But let me also say this. Try for those who are in children's ministry and for those pastors here. We are partnering with parents to raise their children. We are not, the parents are not meant to outsource their children to us. So we give the parents tools to help them to be able to raise their children up in the way of the Lord. Amen? Amen. And I'm saying this not from a heavy, a heavy, a, a, a high a moral ground. Recently in our own church, we realized we were teaching our children too much. We were teaching them doctrines. We were teaching them things. And all of that was there. But we said, man, it's not just by learning doctrine that we became saved. Though. What? Power. Yeah. Our children need to hear power. power. You, know, you know power? <laughs> power. Preaching. They, they need to be preached to, not just taught. Yeah. And the children that used to come and put their hands in their pocket when we were all worshipping and everything, they carried them for a three-day retreat. By the time power came, they started crying. Those children that were putting their in their pocket, that were bugaying, they now started crying. Yeah. They said, Holy Ghost, don't touch them. May the Holy Ghost touch your children. Yeah. They, they, they saw the cross. Like, ah, this is what it means. Some parents came and said, my child, after that, he said, my child has totally transformed. My child starts and he does devotions. They won't just do devotion because he tell them, this is what it means to be a Christian. Let them have the power. Let's not neglect our children. And you know one thing, if our children are excited about the gospel, that is children, youth, if they are excited about the gospel, they are the ones best placed to reach out to their peers with the gospel. So that gap that happened in Korea will not happen. By the time you reach 40-something, you don't know how many of the songs. I I stopped at Joe Boy. Or is it fire boy? I don't even know the difference between Joe Boy and Fire Boy. I'm not, I can't lie. You can't, I can't, I can't keep going. I tried, I tried. It was too much. <laughs> Jonah said, let others, the younger people will reach out to them. They'll reach out and then they'll reach out to others. Amen. Amen. Final group. Nominals. A friend of mine used to say this, and I believe it so much. He said the Pentecostal church virtually saved the church in Nigeria, and it is true. It's a fact. Whether you're Pentecostal or not, it's a fact. It's just a fact. Because at the time, Pentecostalism, well, when I say Pentecostalism, I'm really talking about the revival of, really, our church history has really been Pentecostal from the Aladuras to the 50s, to the 50s revival, well, 30s revival, 50s revival, 70s revival. But I'm talking about maybe, let's say, the 60s, 70s. Because after the scripture union movement had moved and, you know, some would say mainly an evangelical movement, eventually became ossified. It became, it became more about form and less about life. At that time, people basically, in what we would call the Orthodox churches, a lot of them lacked what you call vitality. They lacked life. And what a lot of Pentecostals were saying was that Jesus is real, he's actually real. The Holy Ghost is actually real. He actually does things that he gives boldness and the healing and all of those things point to the Jesus of the gospel and they were able to go into all manner of places. And one of the things they showed was this, 
The fact that you go to church or that you had good morals didn't mean you were saved. They said this, if your Christianity lacked vitality, it lacked legitimacy. The Christians who had the form but no vitality, we eventually termed them nominal Christians. That they were, they had the Christian surname without the Christian life. And so the, the Pentecostals came, the Charismatics came and started saying, man, you need life. Your life must be transformed. You must give your life to Jesus. But there's a new kind of nominal church. You know why? Because most Christians that I know now, they dance in church. They can decree and declare. They hear God speaking to them. But can I tell you that vibrancy is not a sure sign of vitality. You may be vibrant doesn't mean that you have life in you. This is the thing about nominalism. It has a way of morphing over a period of time. So now we have what you call Pentecostal nominalism. Let me tell you this, pastors. Let me tell you. I'm going to just tell you because I mean I've suffered it. I want, to, I want you to suffer it with me. If you have a church of 50, do all your gospel center, doctrine, everything, blah, blah. I can bet you if, if 30 singles are there, there are some singles that were having sex on Saturday and came on Sunday to come and get your blessing. I was going to... I was going to say particularly among, but we leave it there. No, it's just true. You will be shocked by the morals of professing Christians. When my wife and I moved back to the UK, I can't lie, I'm not old, but when it was our time. But honestly, what we used to argue about was whether you can kiss or not. That was what we used to argue about. Right? And some of us always ask that question until somebody gave us the answer we wanted. <laughs> Kissing was the issue. Yes. Yes. I came back and I remember if, uh, 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 um, somebody I discipled, uh, we had a meeting, came back, was talking to her. She hadn't been married. She was over 30. And I said, what's going on? I said, he's the guys around. She said, you know, there's nobody that I date. All of them want to sleep with me. All of them want to sleep with me. And I said, you two, that is, do you have a problem? Why are you going to get guys that are outside of the church? <laughs> and she said, Femi, she said, she said, Femi, all of them are inside the church. All of them were inside the church. At a point, I stopped asking ladies that my wife and I disciple, this guy that went sleeping, I stopped asking whether he goes to church. It is which church does he go to? <laughs> I'm not joking. I love my church people and we're trying to disciple them, but we don't have a perfect church. We don't have a perfect church at all. If you think you have a perfect church, you are just being deceived. I tell the singles in our church, I said, I met one person that came to, got married, and he, we had to talk about, uh, he got married, was newly married, and he went to talk to me about sex. And like, you know, this thing isn't happening well and all of that. I said, ah, okay, well, you know, we're doing transformation bit now. So I said, ah, I said, okay, you know, so we're not saying, you know, this is what happens when two virgins come together and blah. I stopped him. I said, stop. I said, what did you say? He said, two virgins. I said, you are a virgin? He said, our pastor is a virgin. I said, I assume all of you are not virgins. You are all non-virgins, then you prove to me that you're a virgin. It's just the truth. So, Stop being scandalized about it. So many people, that is the, 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 the Christianity that they receive because it's all about transformation. Because it's a Christ without a cross. Because it's all about transformation, they have seen their Christianity mainly towards how they come, get prophetic declarations and blessings and things like that. So they are vibrant nominals. Let me give you one more story. There was... Um, a couple of years ago, there was a staff member of mine that um, got engaged with someone. So I interviewed the person. I was just, you know, talking to the person. I went to meet her. Now, she'd been on the choir of a very well-known large church here on the island for 10 years. So I asked her how she became a Christian. Uh, she didn't really get it. So I said, how does one become a Christian? Because she was, you know, so does one become a Christian? She now says, say, well, you know, she, she now said, 
If you are in a crisis and you have nowhere to go, and you call on God to help you, when God helps you, you become a Christian. Now, sometimes I've learned this. People have the right answers. They don't always know how to articulate it. So don't judge immediately. So I said, okay. I wanted to... I said, okay. Um, okay, I was now trying to help her. And I, okay, let's talk about God, how God saves humanity and all that. So let's first start, you know, God, the triune God, and, you know, Trinity. And she said, you know, the, the head, I said Trinity, the head bounced more like this. I said, ah, okay. There's, I said, you know, Trinity now, Trinity. Uh, Trinity, God's Trinity. One, three person. She said she'd never heard of that before. I said, okay, I, I thought we were going to go back, but we need to now really go back. So I now said, okay, now, take this Bible. I said, open to John 1. So me, I'd open, I scrolled, my own was scrolling. I gave her a Bible, open John 1. So that we could do, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So I didn't see her opening Bible. So I'm scrolling, I'm, are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost there. And she's going back, going back, going back, back. I, I, I said, I brought the Bible, I just, she didn't know where John was. She had been in the choir of a large Pentecostal church on the island for 10 years. Her gospel had no sin, no Christ, no God in it. She had no understanding of who God was, Trinity. And she didn't even know where the book of John was. They are flooded in our churches. You are not just chosen by accident. You are not just anointed by accident. You are commissioned. You have a special purpose. We have to reach out to Muslims. We have to reach out to our children. We have to reach out to nominals. We have to get the gospel to the front and center of our ministries again. Listen, it is the main way believers were converted, but the way unbelievers are converted, but the main way they are also meant to be transformed. If we get back to this, oh my God, if God pours out his fire as we are begging him to, you see, you will find out that our biggest problem is not a Muslim Muslim ticket. We are the people that are engaged in warfare. Our biggest problem has always been Satan, but in the gospel, God has already made an open show of Satan. And so if we get back to that same gospel, if we take it to the nominals, if we take it to the children, if we take it to the Muslims, then we will be able to say confidently we played our part in the role, our, our role in this, that at the end of time, when it's said that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of our Christ, we can say, boldly say that I proclaim the gospel that brought that to bear. If you believe that, let us rise up to our feet. for listening to the gospel in lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about city church visit www.citychurchlagos.com city church love jesus love people love lagos